obviously excited to look at this particular passage with you uh, this morning. Uh, I was chatting with a friend before the service, and I've studied this, I've preached it um, a number of times, but it's the first time that I've ever stood up and preached it kind of from a different place, and so I'm really, really excited to, to share. So uh, people tell me that there's certain kinds of illnesses that um, are really important to uh, catch early. Uh, they can go undetected in our bodies for so long and actually be mistaken for um, just sort of ordinary symptoms. And then you go one day and you find out through a certain test or a certain exam, oh no, this illness is, is, is terminal and it's advanced in your body without you knowing it and now the consequences are severe. This can happen to our physical bodies, can it? You've heard this. Um, the most well-known and common uh, disease or, or illness would be cancer. And, and once it's reached that really advanced stage, even though the patient might not know it, uh, it's, a, it's a grave situation. And every one of us has loved ones that have probably faced this. I understand that this happens not only in the physical world, but it can also happen in the spiritual world. And in the physical world, it's the reason that our doctors tell us, you know, go and get your annual exams and do the blood test. And that way, if there's any early warning signs, we can offer the treatment that's necessary so that you don't become uh, chronically or terminally ill. Well, I want to share with you this morning that there's a certain kind of illness on the spiritual side of life that is very similar to that reality. It often goes undetected before it's too late. It's a certain kind of illness that especially affects the spiritual person. It's the kind of illness that affects, this kind of spiritual illness that affects the type of person who takes their faith really seriously. Once it gets going in a person's life, it actually has a devastating effect, not only on their relationship with God, but it has a devastating effect on their relationship with others. Like so many physical ailments that infect the body without the person knowing it, it can almost be invisible, and then all of a sudden you find out it's, it's cancerous. It's sort of taken over. Now, what is that spiritual malady? What is that spiritual illness that I'm talking about? Um, the emphasis in this story, in spite of how moving it is to me, to you personally, to hear the return of the prodigal son, the emphasis in the story is actually on the non-prodigal son. And the ailment that is, is taken over in his life could be called the disease of the dutiful. The, the, the illness of the one who is so bent on performing and impressing his father. One elder sort of colleague of mine in the ACNA, Kevin Miller, calls it, and this is so good, the resentment of the responsible. I like that better than the duty, uh, the, the disease of the dutiful, because the disease is really resentment. And once it takes over in your life, it becomes cancerous. And it begins to, to, to be terminal in your relationship with your father, as well as in your relationship to other people around you. This is the kind of disease that once it shows up in your life, it's, it's hard to know what to do about it. 
people who experience this would say things like, you know, I didn't expect life to be this difficult. I've showed up, I've prayed up, I've given, I've done all these things, and actually my life is harder or worse than other people around me. And that resentment begins to grow, and we arrive at a place, and this is kind of the the key symptom, we arrive at a place where we're no longer finding satisfaction in God, where we're no longer finding joy and satisfaction in God, where we can no longer hear the music of the party that he's throwing. So this morning, I want to spend a few minutes looking at this illness, and here's the two questions. What are the early warning signs, or what are the signs that this illness is there, is present, And then, what do we do about it? How do we experience God's healing from this disease, this illness? Those are the two questions. And to do so, obviously, we're going to look at this story, the most famous story, the most famous story Jesus ever told. It's really common. And because it's so common, we can can sort of skip over it. And depending upon the day that you read it, I just want to say this at the outset, depending upon the day or the year that you read it, you may actually identify with any one of the three main characters in this story more than the other. I know as as being a, a friend on this journey of faith in this community, I know there are a number of you that will be able to relate to the Father. You're longing to see a child restored to health and well-being. And let that, let that connection draw you closer to this perfectly heavenly father who, who sits on the porch longing for the restoration of all his children. There's others of you who will be able to, on any given day you read it, really resonate and respond to the, to the rebel son, the prodigal son, whose life is a total mess and he blows it. He falls flat on his face. And then others will be able to identify more with the elder son, not regardless of your birth order, right? And regardless of your gender, every one of us can identify on any given day with any one of these three characters. What I find fascinating, now that I've studied it and preached it for quite a while, is the emphasis is really more on the non-prodigal. The reason Jesus tells the story And the context in which he proclaims this most famous story is actually in the the context of those who were more like the elder brother, the Pharisees, the religious leaders that had gathered around him. And you know what? They were so put out with him. At the beginning of the chapter, Luke 15, you might want to turn there if you care to follow along. We're just going to follow this story along. And you're going to see that at the beginning of Luke 15, the religious leaders are really put out with Jesus because he is welcoming He is welcoming the prodigals. He's eating and dining with people whose lives are a mess. And this was a way in that culture to say, you're you're in, you're welcomed. I'm I'm offering myself to you. To be hospitable is to say, "You're, you're, you're with me. And Jesus, why are you doing that with people who are unclean, whose lives aren't all put together? And we know Jesus had really good answers for that. I came to seek and to save that which is lost, Jesus said. That was his mission was to seek and save that which is lost. And so he tells this story. And it's the story of a younger son and an older son and their dad. The younger son, we understand sort of culturally would have been in his late teens, maybe early 20s. 
And he is sort of feeling his oats. He's kind of tired of home. And he has a request of his father that in our culture, you can overlook the significance of what's happening. It's essentially him saying to his dad, I know that once you're dead, I get a third of the estate. So I would prefer that you go ahead and you know, it would be helpful if you would die. So, like, But since you're not dead, would you, uh, would you go with me on this? I want my, that share of the estate, and I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. In fact, you're as good as, to me as dead. And he gets his portion. You and I probably, uh, it depends on the type of parent maybe you or I would be. We probably wouldn't respond this way. This father gives him his share of his estate. And we pick up the story in verse 12, and we find out pretty quickly um, it wasn't long after before he had squandered his living on his, his, his earnings, his inheritance on reckless living. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever spent time planning a vacation before there was TripAdvisor, and uh, you got maybe a postcard or a photo or something, and and, and it looked like, in fact, this was, this was our first anniversary trip. Here's what the banner said. The banner said, Mountain Lodge Retreat Close to the Lifts. That sounds nice. We should do that. We don't have any money, but we should go to the Mountain Lodge Retreat Close to the Lifts. And it was, it was cheap. That should have been the first thing that tipped us <laughs> off. It was really cheap. And we showed up, and it wasn't anything like what had been promised. And this, this is precisely what happens. Is Satan's scheme, his strategy, is to allure you and I and our hearts to some far-off country. And all you can say, it's what my friend once said, he calls this my compliments to the photographer. Right? With just the right lighting, at just the right angle, with just the, you know, just the right settings, you can sort of say, oh, yeah, that's a mountain lodge retreat close to lips. But actually, it's a dump. And it doesn't deliver on anything it promises. And this is exactly what the youngest son finds out. And, and here's the, the, the tell. Um, the evil one hates what I'm about to say. Here's, here, here's the tell. Sin means and promises freedom, but it makes you a slave. He thinks he's free. Man, I'm gone. He's, got his, he's got his ticket, his passport. He's got all his money in his pocket. And he thinks he's totally free. And he arrives at the distant country and within a short period of time, he's a slave. Sin promises freedom, it makes you a slave. And it happens to every single one of us. And it finally, he hits rock bottom. If you know anything about the addiction world, this is rock bottom. He comes to his senses, it says. He realizes, man, I, I, I am done. I'm empty. He's so hungry, he wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating, but nobody would permit him to do so. This is as low as it could possibly go if you were a Jewish male. Everything about it is off. He hits rock bottom. He comes to his senses. And this is what he says. Okay, I got a plan. I'm going to go back to my father. 
I know I can't be his son again, but dad's a, dad's a, a wealthy person. He has a company. I can at least be an employee. You know, at least the mailroom. There's a job in the mailroom or something for me. And he's plotting this. He's thinking, I know I can't come back into the home. I can't really be a son again because I've basically told my dad off and I told him I wish he was dead, but at least I could come back and be a hired hand. And you know, he goes back into verse 20 when he was still a long way off. And you've read it. I've read it. It's so moving. When he's still a long way off, his father sees him. The father's heart is pounding and he runs out to embrace him. This father who has been lavish with his resources is now even more lavish with his expression of love. Runs out, the proper Greek translation is he smothers him with kisses. Embraces him. Doesn't say a word with his speech. He just lavishes physical affection towards his son. He's so glad that he's okay, that he's alive, that he's come home. And as you've probably heard, uh, this particular culture and this particular age was not an age in which fathers of wealthy estates run, but he does. He hikes up his cloak and he runs and he embraces and he lavishes love on him. Um, This is worth purchasing a very high-quality copy and hanging in our homes Uh, Have you ever seen Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son? So good. Uh, So, so good. Why why do we love this story and why do we love this and other renditions of it? Because it it is grace, isn't it? It's the center of our story. This is what Jesus does for me. It's what he does for you. And we get to experience the embrace of the Father, not because we had it all together, not because we cleaned ourselves up and came in, no, no, disheveled, messy, broken, and he lavishes his love towards us in Christ. It's the image that Jesus wants us to hear of his heavenly Father's love. It's the image of a God who wants to be found. It's the image of a God who stands at the door and knocks. Yes, the younger son returns home, but what he finds is a father who's ready to passionately seek after him. And that's where most sermons stop, right there. That's kind of where the story ends, particularly if you're in kind of the evangelical revivalist tradition of North America. We kind of end the story there, and it's, it's a moving story. In fact, many times when I preach this, I'll just spend a week or two just on this portion, and then we'll spend a week or two on the elder brother. It's unfortunate that we tend to stop the story or think that the story has climax. You could imagine it's easy to think that's the climax of the story, but it's not. The story doesn't end there. In fact, Immediately, we are taken outside of the party to another scene with another son. And there's an invitation given, and the invitation by Jesus that's given to the elder son here as he tells the story is open-ended. We don't actually know how the elder son ends up responding. We're not told. And in many ways, this this results in an opportunity for you and I. There's an open-ended question now. Will Will you join in the party? that's being thrown, this grace party, this grace celebration. 
The story hasn't climaxed. We get to the older brother, verse 28, and he has come home um, after working. He's very dutiful. He's very responsible. And he comes home and he hears the sound of the party and he hears what's going on and he begins to sulk. And now we get the symptoms of the disease that indicate that resentment is beginning to take root in a person's life. First one, he's angry. It actually tells us right here, he's, he is angry that this kind of lavish love is being given to his younger, prodigal, wreck of a little brother by the father. There's this anger creeping up. And when you begin to sense that in your life, that man, I, there's like a baseline level, I'm, I'm kind of angry. This is the first symptom. The second one is there's a sense of entitlement in this older brother's life. Look at what he says. Look at how many years I've served you. He begins doing what, what we call scorekeeping. Have you ever done scorekeeping in a relationship? Scorekeeping is where, you know, here's my name. This is Brian on this side of the sheet. And on this side of the sheet is Jen. And we go, okay, well, I do. And I start to fill in the blank. And I start to keep the score. And she does, blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the day or end of the week or end of the year, we go, okay, who, who won? Anybody else have, are you competitive at all? Any relationship is prone to scorekeep. And what I have come to understand from others who are smarter than me is when you're scorekeeping, it's typically an indication that there's some unmet desire or expectation at work in the relationship. And instead of talking from a place of vulnerability and need, we scorekeep. And the elder brother is scorekeeping. Now, who is he actually scorekeeping with? He's actually scorekeeping with God. And this is how this goes. God, look at what I've done. Look at how faithful I've tried to be. Look at, look at the performance. Look at the responsibility. I've showed up for you. I've prayed up for you. I've given up for you. And my life isn't any better. What is the problem here? This is from anger to entitlement. I remember a few years ago talking with a friend that was expressing frustration over some really hard family challenges that he was facing. And as I was listening, eventually the story that he was sharing got to the point where he said, man, we, we are, we're faithful. We tithe, we, we give, we're here, we're leaned in, and yet there, our lives are a mess. My family's broken. And, 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 and at the end of it, he was like, you know, God, what, what's the issue? Why am I suffering like this? There was this underlying sense of entitlement that I do these things, then you respond to my responsible, dutiful performance by giving me my share. Anger, entitlement, and then lastly, jealousy. No small thing that he looks at the father Remember, remember where we are, we're outside the party. And he looks at the father and he says, this son of yours, is a really significant way of saying, I have no, he's dead to me. This is what resentment will do. It not only will distance you and, and become a terminal, a terminal dangerous disease in your own relationship with God, it will actually lead to you not being rightly related to your brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Because jealousy begins to take hold. This son of yours, he says, doesn't even call him his brother. He doesn't want to share. 
And so now the story begins to climax. And the father says to this responsible son two things that I believe offer the cure that we all need. So we're going to freeze the frame. We're going to say the rebel son's inside partying it up, right? The eldest son, the younger son, is inside partying it up. The the older son has come home. He stays outside, and what does the father do? He leaves the party to go outside to, to pursue, to seek after the one who's in the chains of resentment. And he says two things to this responsible son. This responsible son has everything at his fingertips. If you don't know this, the inheritance, the way this worked in this century that they're in is that the eldest son received a double portion. So two-thirds of everything the father owns is the eldest son's. It's all his, eventually. Well, eventually, one-third of it's already gone. So everything that this father has is his. It's all at his fingertips. And he can hear the party, but you know what? He's not, he's not in on it. He can't enjoy it. He's not finding any satisfaction in it. And if we're anything like this responsible son, then we now have to respond to the invitation of the father. Now, for some of you, it melts your heart when you hear the prodigal son come home. He was the rebel son, wasn't he? And in order to to be with the father, he had to get over his rebellion and repent and come to the father. What about the eldest son? In order to be with the father, what needs to happen? He, He has to get over his resentment. And there's two things that Jesus says in this parable that the father does that I believe offer the cure to the illness of resentment. And it has to do with the presence of the father and then this proclamation of the father. So the first is his presence. All right. I am with you all the time. And all that I have is yours. The first thing, I am with you all the time. This is his first cure. This is the healing that's offered. This is what will get you back into the party if you're on the outside sulking and frustrated. He says, I'm with you all the time. When you've been a Christian a long time, you can begin to take this for granted. I have. You can get so dulled in your senses to God's amazing, gracious presence that you can forget that he's he's with you all the time. I have the living God present with me all the time. Everywhere I go, communing with me, being real in my life. Some talk about this as God's manifest presence. And we long at Church of the Resurrection to see you and and all of us begin to walk in this kind of communion with God. He is with you all the time. And we know that we chiefly experience him as we pray with him, as we hear from his word, as we gather together as his body, the church, he is made manifestly present to us. And the question that's asked when you hear this is, are you finding your deepest satisfaction in the presence of God that's with you all the time? Are you finding your deepest satisfaction in the presence of God? For the elder brother, the answer to that at the moment was no, I'm trying to find my satisfaction in performance. Thank you very much. And I'm doing quite a good job at it. 
Sometimes um, it's not true of us that, that we can say we're finding our satisfaction in God. And this is often because we're trying to perform our way in. Uh, there's a lot of joy in this rebel son's life now because he's come to the place where he realizes that really all he has is need and all he has to do is to bring that need to the father who will lavishly bless him with his abundant love and resources but the older son's still trying to earn it if we want to draw near to the father we have to realize what he says to the eldest son is you're with me all the time This will help you find your way back into the party. Don't grow cold to his presence with you. Don't grow cold to his proximity to you. The second way we get back into the joy party is you have to hear the proclamation. And I want to tell you, this becomes a deep philosophy of life. What I'm about to say is a radically different way to live in the world. The first part of it we've already heard, I'm with you all the time. Now the second part, all that I have is yours. Have you come to the place as a son or daughter of God Most High that you know that everything that's his is already yours? This is like the radical proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that everything that's God's has become yours in Christ and mine in Christ. He says, I'm with you all the time and all that I have is yours Everything I have is yours, son. I just, for a moment as we end, have to say that most of us live like orphans. Now, you you might actually have experienced deep trauma by, by being separated from a mother or a father prematurely. And if you know that story physically, then you can really understand what's going on here spiritually. Most of us live as if it's up to us. Most of us live like an orphan lives, that that I I feel a sense of loneliness, I feel a sense of abandonment, I feel a sense that if I don't perform and do it, that it's sort of all up to me, it's up to me alone. That's how an orphan feels. And we know that this can lead to tremendous problems in the life of a human being. Attachment disorders, psychological disorders, impulse control. To be an orphan is to have a little sense of home, to have have almost no sense of home or family or, or care of somebody who's for you. And isn't it interesting? Everything is at the fingertips of the eldest son, and yet he has no joy in it, no participation in it. Why? Because he hasn't come to believe that everything the father has is his. And the reality of our life with God is that everything that is his, has been shared with us. Jesus actually said that on one occasion in John 16. He says, all that the Father has is mine. And therefore, I'm gonna take what is mine and I'm gonna declare it to you. There's this exchange that happens. And in that moment in John 16, Jesus is describing this amazing, mysterious work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the way in which everything that is God's becomes ours in Christ. And eventually we get to the proclamation in Romans where we realize that we are children and we can cry out, Abba. And we can know deep in our soul, everything that is God's is now mine in Christ. Well, if you're a responsible one, uh, some people told me because they knew what what was coming, hey, don't pick on the, the elder brother too much today. 
uh, if you're the responsible one, what do you do with this? Well, partly what you have to do is you have to respond with receiving instead of performing. And one of the ways that we position ourselves to receive is we rest. We stop performing. We rest. I know we live in a Martha world. If you know that passage of Mary and Martha, there's so much to do. There's so much to do. But what we've seen as a leadership team, we're reading a book by Henry Nouwen, and he's talking about how the, the, the greatest barrier to the love of God, you know what it is? It's going to surprise you. Service for God. Being really responsible spiritually, that'll really get in the way of you experiencing the lavish embrace of the Heavenly Father. Jesus leaves this story totally open-ended. What an invitation for you and for me. Um, would you come into the party? Would you come into the joy party of the kingdom? What I had overlooked for 20-something years reading and studying this passage is that the Father seeks both sons. Do you see where he is? He's outside the party saying, I want you back in. Heavenly Father, bring us back into the party. Father, for those of us who have experienced and feel this illness of resentment, would you, by your power and grace, provide the balm of your presence to bring healing to our hearts where we can begin to, to have so much joy at your grace at work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of everyone around us. We ask this for your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.